Father, uh, exalt you. There's no one, there's no being in the universe that is more um, majestic, more mighty, um, more amazing, more um, captivating than you. We love you, especially those of us who um, understand just what it is you put on the line for us. That you sent, you didn't just release, but you sent your one and only son. The Bible says your much loved son. Not just to be a missionary to us, but to be a missionary and then a sacrifice for us. To step in between you and us and offer to die on our behalf. To take the punishment that was rightfully due us because of our sin. Not because we were worse sinners than anybody else, but because we were sinners, period. And somehow in that amazing plot, you satisfied your holiness. You didn't undermine it. You satisfied your justice. You didn't cheat and cut corners. But you also satisfied your mercy and your grace and your love. And we look forward to the eternity that we have to say thank you for that. Um, so we talked this morning about uh, both the life that we have, um, kind of the normal routine of our lives, the, the grind of school and work and our families and our extended relations and friendships and all of that, dreams or hopes. I pray for um, just an openness to the Holy Spirit and what he wants to convey to us this morning from our Savior. Uh, and I pray that you would speak through me when you can and despite me when you must, that none of us would miss the message Jesus has for us this morning. We pray against the enemy who hates you, who hates us, who hates our obedience, who hates our fellowship with you. Pray that you would bind him this morning, silence him, and that instead we would hear from you. In Jesus' name, <clears throat> amen. A number of years ago, a school teacher in New Jersey got a phone call when she was at work, and uh, somebody told her her house is on fire. So she raced home, ran in a burning building, and you and I would do the same thing um, if we had certain things in there we're going to try to to preserve obviously our people but guess what she came out with guess what all she came out with she had in her hand season tickets to the Phillies now I know some of you are rabid diehard Phillies fans and I pray for you regularly but I mean, even you wouldn't go into a burning building for season tickets, especially when you know the Phillies, as the organization told her after the fact, hey, we would have just reprinted them for you. It was interesting reading the news feed and the comments under that. People are um, commenting about this, this woman. Like, There's only about two or three positive comments. You look at something like that and you think, wow. She has some seriously messed up priorities. 
And it, it, isn't it true that those kinds of things are easy for us to see in other people and maybe not so easy for us to see in ourselves? We're going to talk about misplaced priorities this morning. The title of my message is Spotting Misplaced Priorities because it can be such a blindness. And, and I'm going to be up front with you right out of the chute. We're talking about spiritual priorities this morning. The story that we're about to read is, is the only place it's recorded in the gospel. So just a short little story, but it's, it's very thought-provoking. So read with me, beginning at verse 38, Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> I'm reading from the New Living Translation. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him, <clears throat> excuse me, into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. And she came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset about all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. <clears throat> now we're going to go back through this story, looking at, looking at it from three different vantage points, three different perspectives, Mary's, Martha's, and Jesus. Now Mary had basically one thought on her mind, that's let's worship. It seems that already we have indications from John chapter 11 that Mary and Martha's sisters uh, were very good friends of Jesus. They were also the sister of Lazarus, who uh, Jesus raised from dead in John 11. And this is apparently was a place where Jesus spent a great deal of time. We don't know why Mary and neither Mary or Martha were married. It's possible that they were. It was very uh, un... Uh, it, was, it was not customary for women to be single in the ancient cultures. So it might have even been that both women had, uh, were widows, but they lived together with their, uh, with their brother Lazarus. Now, Martha was probably the older one, probably because she's mentioned first, probably felt the burden of the household and so forth. And Jesus and probably his disciples as well, it's a little unclear in the text, stopped by. And so if everybody's there, three um, family members, and then Jesus plus his 12 disciples, this is a house full. Going to be a lot of people here for a meal, 16 people that day. And, and Mary is ecstatic because this is probably the first time that she had a, kind of alone time with Jesus. It's just Jesus and his disciples. Uh, there's no crowds clamoring around asking Jesus all kinds of questions. And this, to her, this is a golden opportunity. I get to sit at the feet of the master. And she probably didn't understand any more than the other 12 disciples did at this point that Jesus was actually the Son of God come in the flesh. But she knew that he was sent by God. She knew that he had the message from God. And like this is, I get to ask him questions. I get to have one-on-one -on -one time with him. So she's sitting down listening to, listening to Jesus. Now, if she was hungry, there's no indication of that. If her stomach was growling, there's no awareness of that. This is not, to her, the importance of this time is not mealtime. She had apparently discovered something that Jesus was trying to convince the devil of in Luke 4, 4, when he says, man does not live by bread alone, 
Now, you and I know that if we don't eat long enough, we'll die. You know, sometimes prisoners in a prison put on a hung, go on a hunger strike, and eventually we've seen some of this in, in, uh, in Ireland. Eventually some of them die. And we know that at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that we need oxygen, food, and water. And if we don't have oxygen within a, a minute and a half or something, we're going to die. If we don't have water within X amount of days, we're going to die. If we don't have food within a number of days, we're going to die. When Jesus said that to the devil, when he was quoting scripture, he wasn't saying that you'll never physically die. He's just like, he's saying, it's not only needful for you to have food for your stomach, but you need to have food for your soul as well. And Mary gets this. And so she's oblivious, to, seemingly oblivious to Martha back here in the kitchen trying to get a, a big uh, a meal ready for her guests. Mary's preoccupation is, hey, let's worship. But Martha's preoccupation is, let's eat. And so she's working with the pomegranates and the olive and she's baking the bread and and she's very concerned. This has to be a great meal because she's had a, she has a great guest in her home today. She's excited about the opportunity. She wants to make a good impression. She wants to have the meal ready at just the right time. She wants to have it, make sure it's not charred and it's not underdone. It's got to be just right. And wouldn't it be great if my sister would help me? And so she goes to Jesus and protests. <clears throat> now, there's a couple of things that Bible students look at this passage and, and draw conclusions about what's the point of it. And some have said over the years, well, the point is that women get too preoccupied with domestic duties. That's not the point. It's not even about women. It's about disciples. So whether you're a woman or a man, boy or girl, you can hear this through the ears of a disciple. It's also not the point that work is bad and Bible study is good. I actually have one of my old Bibles. I saw this reading through it, and I, I wrote in the margin of this, this little incident, work versus worship. No, that's not the issue. It's not that cooking or cleaning or fixing the car or weeding the garden is unimportant in our lives, and we all have those tasks to do. And that we should all forget about all that stuff and become monks or nuns and move into a con convent or a monastery. By the way, even in a convent or a monastery, somebody's making food. Somebody's doing the t cleanup tasks around the place that need to be done. Somebody's making sure that the convent's car works. It's not the issue. It's not that God wants us all to turn into some sort of professional Christians that we don't do normal things. That's not the point. However, having said all that, I'm, I'm convinced that this may be the most revealing incident recorded in the Gospels about why Christ may be today concerned about those of us, maybe many of us, who are 21st century American Christians. Because we are, we are living in a time, in a day and age, in which the distractions for us have multiplied to an almost infinite extent. I've argued for years that Satan is far more interested in <clears throat> moving us just a little bit off the center than he is to have us totally deviate into rank evil. 
In other words, I, I think he is far more successful with many of us getting us just to, to, to get off where God wants us to be, just off the road a little bit, rather than trying to get us off the road a lot. Why? We'd notice it much more quickly if he tries to get us off the road a lot. Satan's probably not going to start out tempting you to do something that is 180 degrees opposite of your inclinations. He's going to tempt you to get off five degrees. And if he can get you off five degrees, maybe nine months down the road, he can work on another five. And maybe three years down the road, another five. And then another five. Until you get to 180 and you wonder, how in the world did I get here? How did I get here? We have 168 hours a week. You have 168 hours a week. I do too. What do we spend them doing? And are there things in those 168 hours that we say, this is a priority in my life. And it's a priority to such an extent that I'm going to protect it against everything, even other good things. This is a priority in my life. I, Stephen Covey, who wrote a book, some of you might be old enough to have read this years ago. Covey's dead now. Uh, it's back in the 80s. Called The S- uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. How many of you have ever re- read that? It's a book that <clears throat> business leaders often have their employees read. Uh, it wasn't in this book, but Covey said this. He said, the key is not to prioritize what's on your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. Think through that. The key is not to prioritize what's on your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. In other words, do you look at your schedule and you have a list of priorities over here and you insert your priorities into your schedule, or does your schedule become your priorities? And all the things that are written in your schedule become the things that you, that's the drum that you, you march to. One of the things that I have uh, been pondering over uh, recent years is how accidentally I can make decisions. What I mean by uh, by that is this. There are are many decisions that we make in life, uh, main decisions that we make, that inadvertently make other decisions for us. And so, for example, when... Uh, a young couple comes to the ma- marriage altar and says, I do. They're saying th- things like uh, in their vows, I'm going to stick with you for richer, for poor. And some of the men say, thank God for that, honey. They're going to be there in sickness and health. And some things like that. And, and they're making those commitments um, out loud, verbally, vocally, but there's a lot of other things that are hidden in that decision. One of the things I talk about with engaged couples when we do premarital counseling is the new relationship you're going to have with friends of the opposite sex. So as a young man, you might have a friend who's a a woman, but she's not a romantic partner. And how are you going to relate to her now as a new husband? This has a, a, become a great debate even within the church. You know, a guy says, well, why can't I get together with a female friend? I, you know, 
We were friends before I got married. She's still my friend. Why can't we go out to dinner together? Like, well, you can't go out to dinner together with her anymore because you have a new relationship. When you said I do to this woman, you, you said I'm going, to pre, I'm going to keep myself free of dangerous relationships. You, you said I'm going to keep myself from appearances of evil. And so I'm going <clears> to, <throat> she can still come over and have dinner with us at our house when you're there. But I'm not going to meet with her apart from you. Now, he didn't say that in his vows at, when he said I do. But that's a decision, that's an inadvertent decision that should have been made. Hey, I understand from Scripture that when, it's, when it says that um, 1 Corinthians 11, that man is the, is the head of the home, that doesn't mean that he gets to be the tyrant and throw his weight around. I understand that means that he's responsible to God for what happens in that home. And so one of the things that he's responsible for is the financial health of the home. And so even if his wife is working or maybe he's sick for a season or gets laid off for a season and she's bearing the brunt of the financial burden of the household, that he's the one who should feel it. Even if right now he can't do anything about it, he's the one who should feel the burden of the financial health of the household. Now, he didn't say that in his vows. He, that wasn't a decision that was made there. But by virtue of him making the decision to say, I do, there are other inadvertent decisions that are made. If your eight-year-old son comes home with a flyer from school and is talking about midget football, and you decide to let him play midget football, and you sign on the line, says parent's signature, there might be a whole lot of other decisions that were inadvertently made that day. You used to do X, Y, Z on a Saturday morning. Well, now you, you, you made a commitment to make sure that your son gets to practice Saturday morning, make sure he gets picked up after practice. You probably made a commitment inadvertently that you're going to be as, at, at as many games as you can possibly be at that he has. But maybe you didn't even think through all that when you signed your name on the line. You made one decision. That led to a bunch of other inadvertent decisions. The point I'm trying to make is sometimes we... We haven't thought through our priorities. We simply make a decision here, a decision there, a decision here, a decision there. Four decisions, but at the, at the, end, of, at the end of the thing, we've actually made 38 decisions. How, how many times have you asked friends of yours, how are you doing? And they proceed to tell you how busy they are. If, if they're not old folks like me and they tell you about the, all their aches and pains, they're going to tell you about how busy they are. And you can hear it in their voice. And you do the same thing and I do too. You can hear it in their voice. We're not sure how we got to this place. We're not sure why we are so busy. But we're really busy and it's a burden and it's crushing us and it's weighing us down. And I bet you if you picked hard enough away at the edges of your busyness, that you and I would find that we have some, made some screwed up priorities along the way that weren't made intentionally. But here's where we got to by making those other four or five key decisions. You understand what I'm saying? So many times that we end up making decisions that we didn't make. They just happened because we made other decisions. Jesus is a different perspective than Martha. He says, let's prioritize. 
Let's prioritize. Did you notice a key word in verse 40 when we read through this? It describes what was going on with Martha. It says, Martha was, what's the word? Distracted. How many of you would look at your calendars and look at your life and say, man, I, there's a, so much of my life in which I am distracted. It's interesting. You look at almost any English translation, Bible translation, and the word is translated always the same. Distracted, 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 distracted. It's not ambiguous. And I wonder how many of us who follow Jesus, who rejoice in the things we sung about this morning, that Christ died, conquered sin, came back to life, and because of that reality of the gospel, I have been made a new creation in him. I've been made a son or daughter of Jesus Christ. I've been given an, an, an eternal inheritance. And yet if we look at our lives, we say, there's not a lot in my life that would reflect that. Wonder how many of us would say that. I love Jesus. I love what he's done for me. But really I've kind of marginalized him in my life. He, he's not a priority. And if I hear him call to me, about that at times, the voice sounds so distant and so not urgent that it's just easy for me to stick with my other priorities. I wonder how many of us would say that. It's interesting that while Jesus is speaking, nobody seems to be clamoring for food. Martha's back there working up this great meal, but Mary's not going out for food. The disciples, if they're there, we think they probably were. They're not going out for Nobody's saying, hey, time out. Can you take a preaching break here? You know, if you watch a movie, not if you watch one at home. If you're like me and you watch a movie at home, you, you love to hit the pause button, go out to the kitchen and get a snack. But if you're in the theater watching a great movie, like uh, John and Ruthie and I, uh, Betty and I were on Wednesday night. We were there at the uh, at Penn Cinema, uh, watching um, same kind of different as me. And, and by the way, you got to see that movie. It started on Friday. Um, if you read the book, it's not quite as good as the book, but it's still great. And I remember John saying at the end of the movie, "I'm like that was too short." Two hours later, that was too short. Nobody ran out of the movie in the middle of it to get popcorn. You know, we're in those recliners. Aren't they great? Watching the movie. Nobody left the theater in order to go get food. Why? It was riveting. Captivating. And maybe the fact that we, for some of us, there's just not a, there, there's, there's a hunger for everything but Jesus. And you know, if you, if you don't eat for a period of time, some of you have fasted for days, you, you, you realize there's a, there's a point at which your hunger starts to change. It starts to dissipate. And if you go long enough, you're not even hungry anymore. Why? Because the intake of food, the intake of food stirs up the appetite. 
And if you do not intake the food of God, your appetite begins to wane and diminish. And you shouldn't be surprised that weeks and months and even years down the road, you've lost the appetite for Christ and his gospel. And maybe you've lost the perspective. And even think about, we talked a month or so ago about the feeding of the 5,000. And you read that story. They were with Jesus all day. He's healing. He's teaching. He's preaching. They're asking questions. And nobody's worried about food. Until late in the day, the disciples start to get concerned about it. Like, these people need food. Well, none of the crowd was lobbying for that. Why? They had an appetite for the things of God. The reality is, and I'm sure you've discovered this, I have as well in my life, is that these things that are, can so easily be deadly distractions appear to us in general as harmless. Back to the idea that the enemy tempts us with good things as well as evil things. In fact, probably with believers does that more typically than with evil things. He knows he can't get you to go there, but he can get you to go here. And so let me ask you this morning, what is in your life that's maybe not wrong, but you've given it a place of priority that God never intended it to have? And in the process, you've supplanted the priorities that God desires you to have. You've been here long enough. You know the kinds of drums that I beat with these kinds of teachings. Do you have a dusty Bible that sits on your coffee table or sits on on your bookcase or somewhere, maybe sits here in a lost and found for weeks on end? And you're like, I I come to church. That's where I get my spiritual food. You, You wouldn't eat one day a week, would you? You wouldn't tell your wives, okay, from now on, we're just going to have Sunday lunch each week, and we won't eat between Sunday and Sunday. You, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because your body needs to be fed. So does your soul. John Sununu, um, member of past Bush administration, says perspective gives us the ability to accurately contrast the large with the small, the important with the less important. Without it, we are lost in a world where all ideas, news, and information look the same, where we cannot differentiate, we cannot prioritize, and we cannot make good decisions. So is in your life, in my life, is the good competing with the best and winning out is the good competing with the best and winning out and it's interesting Jesus talking about Martha's distraction he says to her you are worried and upset about so many things and isn't it true the stuff that we make priorities bring worries into our life they make us upset it's making not just a living but making a really good living 
It's not just taking care of the property. It's, it's taking really good care of our property. It's not just having a retirement plan. It's having a really good retirement plan. It's not just enjoying outings. It's enjoying a lot of outings. And Jesus is calling from his word, won't you come and sit with me? He's calling from his church. Won't you gather together with the other saints and, and hear the teaching of the word of God and fellowship and praise with their brothers and sisters and mingle with them and talk with them and listen to them and be encouraged by them and be challenged by them. Jesus is calling from the others in our lives that maybe we don't notice when we go past them, but the Spirit's directing us to them and saying, won't you help this person? I shared this a number of years ago. It was about five years ago. God began to convict me how blind I was to people in need around me. I said, well, you're a pastor. Don't you, aren't you attentive to people in need? I'm attentive to people in need who are my responsibility. And so if it's one of you, and this is my job, but I could drive past somebody on the road or see my neighbor struggling out in their backyard, and, you know, my antenna just not up to people in need. And what did Jesus said when asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus, you're a rabbi. What's the greatest commandment? He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they, they're about to say, yeah, I thought that's what it was. And he goes, oh, and the second is like the first. Love your neighbors yourself. Don't be so consumed with your schedule, Keith, that you can't interrupt it for somebody that I send you to. A woman by the name of Bronwyn Lee lives in Northern California. She's out where the wildfires are raging. And her community is under a fire watch. And so uh, for the last couple of weeks, she has been zealously watching the online fire maps. She has like a GPS blue dot where her house is. And she's constantly watching to see, are, the, are we going to have to run like that? She said a number of weeks ago, she was working, before the fire started, she was working on a, her Christmas list. Family asked her for ideas, and she had some luxury items down there. She said this last week and a half, has, uh, she says this has been purifying my priorities. She said, I've been putting together in my mind a mental grab bag list. If we have to go in an instant, what am I going to get? The kids, the dog passports, birth certificates, phones, chargers, wedding photos. And that's it. When we think our life might be in danger, everything suddenly gets stripped down, doesn't it? Betty and I were camping in North Carolina um, two weeks ago. And uh, first couple days there were absolutely gorgeous. Oh my goodness, they were so beautiful. 60, 70 degree during the day. The colors were just starting to change. We were camped right beside this beautiful river. But when we had pulled into the campgrounds, a, a national park, <clears throat> there were these diamond yellow signs everywhere. Flash flood warning. And after we were there a couple days, a guy that was camping next to us in the tent, um, we got to chatting, and, and he said, you hear about the storm front that's coming in? I'm like, no. We couldn't. At that point, we couldn't get, uh, we didn't have Wi-Fi hadn't been able to keep up on things. He said, well, there's a tropical de depression coming in from the east. And he showed me on his phone. He said, right here, 
Um, he's a former airline pilot, so he's really attentive to the weather. And he showed me this one map. He said, we're right here. You see that line that goes back, goes around that uh, location? He said, we're either, if, we, if the storm goes this way, we're going to get four to six inches starting Saturday through Tuesday. If it goes this way, we're going to get six to ten inches. I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound good. So the rain started Saturday night. It was so loud. We got up Sunday morning and it tapered off. We went to church. By the time we came back, there was no one left in the campground but us. That's also not a good sign. <laughs> that afternoon, we were playing games in the camper. We have a little pop-up hard top. And it was, the rain was so loud that Betty and I literally couldn't hear each other across the table speak. That night, about 7 o'clock, I did a little drive around the campground because there was a river that came around the campground on two sides. And I went down to this spot where I could see the river where it would first overflow if it was going to, and it was already at the crest, and it was uh, at the bank, and it was raging. And I went back and I said, uh, we were planning to stay two more days. I said, honey, we are out of here. We're going to tear down right now. We're going to get out. I don't want to find out at 2 o'clock in the morning that we have to leave now and the camper, we're going to leave the camper behind. At that point, all I cared about, really, was our safety. And listen, if you know Christ, God in Christ has already taken care of safety. That's not the issue. The issue is whether or not we live out 2 Corinthians 5.10. He died for all so that those who live, meaning those who are saved, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and gave himself up for him. Are your priorities in your life the ones that God has for you? Are the things that I spend my time doing? And again, please don't come away from this thinking, okay, we need to stop cooking, we need to stop cleaning, we need to stop working in the garden, we need to stop going on vacations. That is not the point. But if all those good things displace the best things, you and I have lost our perspective. And Jesus sits on your Bible. He sits in your church. He sits in the people around you. And he says, don't forget the important things. Don't be distracted by good things so that you neglect the important things. Let's pray. Father, I, um, as a native of Lancaster County, <laughs> I know that a lot of us have been really schooled in making our lives busy and a good portion of that is doing tasks not just our jobs but the work around the house and just work work kinds of things and it makes it harder in our culture to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him speak to us in the word to link arms with our brothers and sisters and praise him together and 
hear his word taught and serve his people. Harder to see people in need around us that he might be sending us to. I don't know what you want to say to other people. I know what you want to say to me. And I would pray simply that our hearts would be um, vulnerable, that the Spirit could speak. And we might say, God, I, want, I, I might need to tweak this. I might need to start getting up 15 minutes earlier than I normally do on my work day just so I can open the Word and listen to Jesus, talk to Him. Maybe, maybe half out of all my years, Sundays, that I neglect the people of God, worse public worship, maybe I need to say, oh, we're going to make this many times a year because I don't want to grow cold. Maybe we're going to intentionally um, identify some neighbors that we see are kind of, they don't have family to help them. We're going to say, you know, I'm going to check in with them on, from time to time, see if there's anything I, I can do to help them. I don't know what it is you want to say to others. Just make us hearers who can listen well. In Jesus' name, amen.